Good morning. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke, chapter 14. If you're using one of the black uh, Bibles in front of you in the pews there, it's going to be page 873. Let's begin this morning by reading Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your eyes. We need the eyes of your spirit this morning. Help us to see Jesus. It's so tempting, Father, to look at these one another commands and walk away just feeling the weight of them and the fact that we failed at them and we just need to do better at them and we miss Jesus. Open our eyes to see his beauty, his glory, his power. And change our hearts, Father, so that we want to be more like him as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. What in the world is going on in the world? Does anyone else wake up in the morning, and maybe for that split second you have some relief and you think, oh, thank God, things are, are normal. But then it hits you, oh wait, no, they're not. We really are living in the middle of a global pandemic. 
There really is a virus ripping through our most populated cities, wreaking havoc on people's respiratory systems. And if I get it, my life could be in danger. Most stores and restaurants really have been closed for the last three months. Vacations and trips and weddings and other long-awaited gatherings have been canceled and postponed or, probably worse, modified in ways that are just kind of disappointing. I really am expected to wear a mask wherever I go. I really am expected to limit my personal contact with people outside my own family. And even worse, there really does seem to be an all-out tribal war going on in our cities. Article after article, news cycle after news cycle, riots, looting, protests, statues, monuments, police brutality, all of these things front and center. And then there's the cesspool known as social media. And if you're unfortunate enough, as I have been a few times, to follow the rabbit holes into some of the most depraved and disgusting conversation on the planet, then you know that diving into that underworld of sound bites and misinformation and half-truths and conspiracy theories and political maneuvering only leaves you less informed, more suspicious of your neighbors, and less in love with Jesus. Church, these are difficult times. Desperate times, even. I don't claim to have all the answers to all of these social ills. Oh, yes, I have opinions, lots of them, but that's not the point. Our world doesn't need more opinions or memes or retweets. The fact is we are surrounded by people in our neighborhoods our workplaces, even in our own families who are overcome with fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. That was the case four months ago, and it is even more the case today. And now, in the midst of crisis after crisis and news cycle after news cycle, will we, as Christians who claim to know the sovereign God who controls all things, will we be able to offer any hope In the midst of this, is there anything we can actually do? Will we cowardly retreat into our homes and board up our doors and grab our guns and hunker down? Will we join with the vitriol and the hatred being spewed by Marxist revolutionaries on the streets? Or is there a better way forward? Friends, if you find yourself looking at what's happening in the world, even in our own city, and you feel pressure to pledge your allegiance to a group or a movement or a political party, then you're being duped. I'm not saying there's not value to some of those things. We can get on board with some of those things. But the way of Christ never fits squarely into any worldly movement and certainly never fits squarely into any political party. Jesus turns all of those things on their heads. His ways for us are different. They are higher, they are harder, but they are better. So what can we really do? This better way I want us to consider today 
is what I call radically ordinary hospitality. I stole that phrase from this book. I don't want to take any credit for that. Radically ordinary hospitality. The word hospitality in the New Testament literally means love for strangers. Love for strangers. Even love for immigrants. Up on the screen we'll see three Passages, just going to run through them really quick. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, Romans 12, 13. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, Hebrews 13, 2. That's pretty interesting. I'm not going to talk much about what that means necessarily, but um, you might be just entertaining angels by practicing hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4, 9. So we see that showing hospitality is a New Testament command. It is a one another command. It's an expectation for Christians. Today, my hope is that we would see that practicing radically ordinary hospitality does three things. It does lots of things, but today we're going to see three. Number one, it kills self-righteousness. Number two, it pushes back against spiritual darkness And three, it is a display of gospel love. And to see this, we're going to join our Lord at a dinner party in Luke 14. We just read the passage. What I want us to see first is that hospitality kills self-righteousness. Look back in verses 7 through 11 that we just read. Verse 7, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, Move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the point of the parable is to give instruction, not necessarily about proper dining customs, okay? What Jesus is doing is showing his listeners what kind of heart God expects of those who are part of his kingdom. This is kingdom living. That's Jesus' point. These are the people God is looking for in his kingdom. So it's not about behavior, sit here, don't sit here. It's about a heart attitude that Jesus is after. But included in the parable is a rebuke to those who are self exalters. What does Jesus say to those who are guests? He's talking to the guests, the receivers of hospitality. Does he say, eat all you want, drink all you want, take advantage of the host, wreck his house, help yourself to all of his generosity? After all, you're the guest. No, Jesus actually has a rebuke for how we receive hospitality. In that time period, especially in important social events, seats were arranged so that everyone knew who the guests of honor were based on where they were uh, sitting. One um, commentator says this. He says, at private banquets, the master of the house presided. So if he was at your house, 
you were the master of the house. But on public occasions, a governor of the feast was chosen. The guests were then placed in order according to seniority or according to the rank they held. And apparently, it had become commonplace for certain members of the community, probably Pharisees and lawyers, because that's who Jesus addressed earlier, is for them to just assume that they were to receive these seats of honor so they would just help themselves to the seats. And Jesus, of course, knowing the heart of man, rebukes them. Jesus is basically saying this, are you really so arrogant to think that you deserve this seat of honor? Or maybe, just maybe, someone more distinguished than you might actually show up. That's what he says, right? Don't sit in the high seat because what if someone else who deserves that seat more than you shows up? Or are you really that arrogant? Has it even occurred to you that that might be a possibility? Or are you really that self-righteous? The reason Jesus tells them to take the lower seat is to leave room for someone else. That's hospitality. Leave room for someone else who just might be more important than them. Another word for this is just humility. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. We, we recite that in my house over and over. We have four kids. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The kind of self-righteousness that presumes that I am the most important, I deserve an honored seat, does not display the kind of heart that Jesus is after. Instead, humility requires us to lower ourselves to the lesser seats. And if the host, if the host chooses to lift us up, let it be so. So the point is not, don't be exalted, The point is, don't exalt yourself. Let someone else do it, because that's how things work in the kingdom of Christ. But the second rebuke Jesus gives comes in verses 12 through 14. So 7 through 11, Jesus gives a rebuke to the receivers of hospitality, to the guests. But in 12 through 14, he has a rebuke also for those who host He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Self-righteousness kills the spirit of hospitality. Christian hospitality says, my home and my life are open for the good of those who are in need. Self-righteousness says, my home is open to those who are like me, who belong to me, who make me feel comfortable, who can provide me with some kind of benefit. 
But Jesus calls us to cast aside earthly rewards and remember the final, most important reward, the resurrection of the just. There's nothing you can give up in this life, friends, that you will not receive back tenfold at the resurrection. Church, when we open our homes and our lives to those in need, to our neighbors, it's going to feel like we are missing out on so much. I know this firsthand. Uh, most of you know Kelly and I have a, we have a foster child, Damon, special needs, very delayed. When he's almost five, and we're still changing diapers. He knows like 20 words. It's a lot of work. We have had a lot of conversations about what would our lives look like if Damon was not with us. It would look much different. Oh, it would be so much easier. We could go where we wanted so much easier. We could stay as long as we wanted. Our camping trips would be so much less work. But what Jesus says, whatever you're giving up in this life, you don't have to fear. You're going to get it all back and so much more at the resurrection. Friends, don't live for the rewards of this world. That's what self-righteousness is. It's clinging to the things of this world, the praise of man, the, our positions, our status. If that's what we cling to, that's what we're gonna end up with, and that's all we're gonna end up with. Christian hospitality says, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let it go, my home, my life, my possessions, because I know that no matter what happens in this life, in the end, at the resurrection of the just, it'll be worth it. See, those who are self-righteous don't seek to steward their home for the glory of God and the good of others. They seek to hoard their home and protect their home from anyone or anything that might seek to threaten their idolatrous love of perceived safety and security. I'm not saying be unwise, right? I'm not saying put your family in danger How many of us need the way we think about our home reoriented today? Is your home your castle, your safe place, your refuge or escape from the world? Friends, I get that. There are times for that, right? We need that to some degree, okay? I'm not saying that that's always wrong. But Christians are called to something better, something higher, if our home is primarily our retreat away from all the wicked, scary people out there, then we are missing out on God's purpose for us. We must fight against this self-righteousness that says, thank God I am not like the tax collector or sinners out there. Number two, hospitality, Christian hospitality, pushes back against spiritual darkness pushes back against spiritual darkness. Church, we are surrounded by spiritual forces of evil that are at war with the gospel. We forget this, don't we? Do you believe that? Do you see it? I hope you do now, 
because of what's going on all around us more than you have ever. This has always been the case, but it seems so magnified right now. As I look what's happening in our country and in our city, what I see is that everything is backwards. Doesn't it seem like that? Everything is backwards. Lawlessness celebrated. Destruction of property, destruction of human life. Babies in the womb to the tune of thousands daily. Media perpetuating lies and half-truths. It's almost impossible to even get to the truth because the truth is always spun to fit some political agenda. Our media outlets, higher education, public schools run by people and ideologies explicitly opposed to the authority of the Word of God, a belief in the very existence of God and the very existence of truth. We are seeing what happens when a civilization calls what is good evil and what is evil good. And when we see such confusion and chaos on such a massive scale, where do we often turn? Usually we think of massive solutions, right? How can we as a society correct these huge problems? Well, we got to elect the right people, right? We got to get the right guy. In the, president, in the president's spot, we gotta get the right governors, we gotta get the right leaders. There's some truth to that. We gotta get more laws on the books, we gotta get the right social programs, we gotta get people out there, we gotta make a, a post, we gotta know, uh, I, need to, I need people to know where I stand on certain issues. It's so easy to start functioning as though these issues are gonna be solved with all of these higher solutions, massive solutions. Church, let me just say this as clearly as I can. God never gets your address wrong. You see, you live right now where you live because God has put you there so that you can be a light in the midst of spiritual darkness. A light in the midst of spiritual darkness. A small light, one light in the midst of spiritual darkness. And there's things that we can do on a broad scale, on a big scale. We can vote for the, the right people. We can, we can protest. We can put things out there and and vocalize the right things. I'm not throwing all of that out, but what I want us to think about today is where are you put right now? Who are the people in your life right now who are overwhelmed with spiritual darkness? You are their light. You are meant to be their light. One thing we can all do as a response to the spiritual darkness at play in our world is practice radical, gospel-saturated hospitality. Do you want to defeat the lies and deceptions of Satan in our community? Then walk next door and get to know your neighbors. 
Do you want to see the forces of darkness pushed back in our city and the gospel to shine forth? The most effective way to do that is human to human, person to person, love, service, and gospel proclamation. If you're scared, if you don't know how to do that, then you're in good company. Maybe you might be saying, you don't know my neighbors, Caleb, the things that they're into. I can't stand my neighbors. What if they are really bad people? My answer is great, so are you, right? Aren't we all? As you consider what it might be like to get to know your neighbors, here's some principles. So I got these from, from this book. This is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a tremendous book on hospitality, right? My sermon is like a really, really cheap um, imitation of what I've been reading in this book. But as you think about how do I do this, Rosaria Butterfield, she, she lays out some some principles that she encountered. So she came to Christ because an older Christian couple invited her into their home, and over the course of months, she met with them, and she was very opposed to that. She was meeting, she, got, she agreed to meet with them because she was writing a book on all the terrible things about evangelical Christians. And she wanted to do her homework and, and actually do some research. And as she got to spend time with these people, she came to know Jesus. So she lays out some principles, some ideas of what this couple did that really helped change the way she thinks. So here's some things to keep in mind. Here are a few principles if you're thinking, how do I do this? How do I, what are things I need to know if I'm going to invite my neighbor into my home? First, she says, know the difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance and approval. She says, we can accept people as people because they are human beings made in the image of God, while also being honest with them that we do not approve of sin. While this is a hard balance to strike sometimes, and not everyone will be willing to receive it, it is the way of Jesus. He treated all people with dignity, respect, and love. But that love sometimes took the form of a gentle listening ear, sometimes a compassionate physical touch, and sometimes a bold rebuke. So first, to know the difference between acceptance and approval. Number two, pray that you will be a safe person to hear the burdens of your neighbor. Are you a safe person to hear the burdens of your neighbor? She says, Ephesians 429 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. She says, may my words give grace to those who hear. My words are not pep talks. I hope indeed that my words are not my words, but the words of Christ working through me. Invest in your neighbors for the long haul and stop thinking of conversations with your neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives. Church, that was huge for me when I read that. How often do we think about hospitality or even just conversations with our neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives? 
You might be thinking, okay, so how should I be thinking about it? This person is an image bearer of God that you are called to love and serve. Not to trick them into believing believing in Jesus or hearing the gospel. Number three, understand the difference between holiness and goodness and celebrate the goodness of your neighbors. Every one of our neighbors has goodness. God's common grace falls on everyone. Find out what that goodness is and celebrate it. Encourage it. Build a common bond with them. Care about the things they care about. We, we, we know this, right? You have kids, your neighbors have kids, boom, you're gonna be friends. It doesn't matter if you like this person or not. Your kids are gonna play together and you're gonna be friends with your neighbor to some degree. You have a dog, your neighbors have a dog, guess what, you're gonna be friends, right? Because your dogs are gonna love each other. That's just the way it is. We build common bonds with common interests. Get to know your neighbor's interests and build common bonds with them. There's things about them that are good, that we can celebrate and we can join with them in those things. That's just three things. She, she talks about a lot more. But that was helpful for me as I started thinking, okay, how do I do this, right? How do I have people in my home that are different than me, have different values? Brothers and sisters, this is how we each individually can push back against the spiritual darkness in our community. This is something we can all do. Instead of joining the internet culture wars, let's turn on the coffee pot and invite someone over. Let's be listeners and learners and actually show people that we care. This brings me to my last point. Hospitality is a display of gospel love. It's a display of gospel love. Look again in verse, starting in verse 11. I'm sorry, 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This idea was radical in Jesus' day, probably more radical than it is in our day, but it's still radical in our day. Jesus is not forbidding us to have our friends or family members in our homes. What he is saying is that when it comes to living out the renewed life that Jesus calls us to, it ought to result in transformation of how we interact with those who are considered the outcasts in our society. You see, the world says, love those who can benefit you, but Jesus says, love everyone, even those who are not capable of repaying you with their love. Those the world often forgets, neglects, casts aside, and outright hates, those are the people we are called to engage. This radical generosity is fueled as we remember And we are overwhelmed by the gospel for ourselves. Church, this is absolutely key and foundational to everything that I've said this morning. 
before we can see ourselves as Jesus inviting the poor and the sick and outcast into our homes, we must first see ourselves as the poor, the sick, the blind, and the lame. You see, we were the outcasts. We were the rebels. We are those rioting and looting with hatred in our hearts, ripping and tearing apart the wonderful gifts God has given us and choosing to worship the creation rather than our creator. And for our rebellion, for our disobedience, every one of us deserves the anger and punishment of God. But now look back up in verse one. We haven't really looked at this section yet. It says, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That's edema, I think is how you say that. It's kind of the modern version of that. It's basically a a lot of fluid built up um, in, in your body, and there's a lot of swelling that goes on. There was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. We are rebels. We are those who are sick. We are the outcasts, the untouchable ones, aren't we? But instead of destroying us immediately, Jesus comes near. He does not come to earth and start digging a bunker to hide from all the rebels. He does not retreat into his home and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. No, rather, he becomes obedient, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And as he is murdered on that cross, he actually takes the sin of those rebels, cursing his name, onto himself and says, Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then to prove he is actually God in the flesh, he rises from the dead three days later, ascends into heaven, and now reigns as king of the universe, as the eternal God-man in the flesh with all authority in heaven and on earth. Why is this good news for us? Because anyone, anyone, no matter the skin color, No matter how heinous the sin, no matter how wicked, who turns from sin and trusts in the work of Jesus on their behalf can now, this very moment, receive the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And this is all because of the radical hospitality of our Savior. He came near to us. He invites us in. He doesn't keep us out. He says, come to my table. That's what the Lord's Supper is, you know. We come to the table with our Lord. We are welcomed into the family. It it looks forward to the day where every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around the throne, around the table 
with our Savior, enjoying his feast. Friends, the people seated at your dinner table is directly connected to whether you believe the gospel or not. And even though none of us practice hospitality as we should, maybe you've been listening and you've been saying, man, I'm not there. I have failed. This is hard. Remember this, that Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for you, okay? Jesus welcomes you anyway. We are not defined by how well we perform Christian hospitality. For every failure that we have committed in hospitality, Jesus has died for it. Every one of us, church, has been sent. And the place we have been sent to is dark. It seems darker now than ever, but what a tremendous opportunity we have to shine the light of the gospel into the lives of those around us. Let's make it a priority this week to get outside, to get out front in your front yard, to make a phone call, to walk next door, to send a text, to invite our neighbors into a home where they might hear a message of hope they have never heard. I know it's still COVID. I know that all that's still going on. Be mindful of that, okay? I understand that. Don't drag someone into your house kicking and screaming. Um, But look for ways to practice radically ordinary hospitality. And my prayer for us is that by practicing radically ordinary hospitality, that this would become not just an event that we start and stop, but a way of life for us. That hospitality would affect the way we think, the words we speak, the life decisions we make, the way we spend our money. Church, we can't do everything, but we can do something, each of us. Let's be the kind of people who use our homes to kill our own self-righteousness, to push back spiritual darkness in our city, and to put gospel love on display. I want to end with a quote from Rosaria Butterfield's book. There's so many good quotes. Please get, get this book if you want to read more about this. Great, great. It's very practical, but also very foundational to hospitality. This is just one of many good quotes I'll end with. She writes, we live in a world that heartlessly accepts as normal a worldwide refugee crisis, a world that has grown numb to the increasing numbers of children aging out of foster care and into homelessness, a world that accepts insanely long terms of incarceration for nonviolent crimes. Often, we Christians have no idea how to open our hearts and our homes to include people who need to be there. We love the miraculous stories of Jesus, his feeding of the 5,000, his divine healings, his contagious grace. And we miss the most obvious things about these stories, that we are meant to replicate them in ordinary, non-miraculous ways. Do Christian people practice Christian hospitality in regular, ordinary, consistent ways? 
Or do we think our homes too precious for criminals and outcasts and misbehaving children? Our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that even as I preach this, this is so hard for me. I want my home to be my castle. I want it to be a place of comfort and rest and retreat from the world. And while there might be aspects of that that are okay at times, I am drawn back to the words of Christ over and over that if anyone wants to come after me, he must die to himself. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him die. Lord, I pray that we would be a church full of people who are willing to give up the things that we hold closest to us. First of all, because there are image bearers of God who need us, who need our homes, who need love and service, but also because in the end, the reward will be so much better. God, help us to believe that. I pray that that wouldn't just be an idea, but it would be a heartfelt truth that leads to action on our parts. Help us, Father, to live out radically Christian hospitality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.